Greetings and welcome to Beyond Huasia, a podcast that introduces you to a college-level history of East Asia without the pain and expense of actually going to college. Unless, of course, you're one of my students, and this episode appears on the syllabus, in which case you've got the worst of both worlds. I'm Justin Jacobs, professor of history at American University. I want to begin this podcast with the most important question of all. Why should we study history? Now, if you did the only homework I'll ever ask of you, which is read the title of the podcast episodes, then you already know the letter of the answer, if not the spirit. History is the best therapy for the problems that plague our daily lives. Not only is history therapy, it's also really, really fun. Now, these are the two reasons why I study history, why I've made it my life's pursuit to do research on historical problems and understand how things came to be. Uh, History is supposed to be about you and your daily life. It is supposed to be relevant. It is not a whole bunch of abstract things that are totally irrelevant to your life. That may have been how it was taught to you when you were in school, uh, but that's not what this podcast is going to be about. Uh, History for me is about a bunch of topics that speak to the problems and concerns and desires and yearnings that we have in our daily lives And we look to history to try to understand how people in the past have dealt with the same problems that we deal with today. Now, I have a very ambitious goal of learning history, but it's also very simple. History allows me, and hopefully it will allow you, to be more at peace with the world that we live in. And how does it do this? It does this by helping you understand why things happen and how things came to be. Now, if you don't understand why things happen, and how certain phenomena have come to be in our world, uh, in other words, if you don't understand the complexities of history, then you're doomed, I wouldn't say to repeat it, but you are doomed to parrot and regurgitate the simplest explanations for why things happen, and how the world came to be. And these simple explanations are misleading, they will frustrate you, and they will continually make you search for answers that aren't there. What are the simplest explanations for how the problems of our lives came to be? Well, if you study history, you'll learn that two things appear over and over and over again. They're both what I would refer to as discourses, uh, the way that people talk about how things came to be. There's two major discourses that you hear throughout history. The discourse of the good old days and the discourse of the great man or great woman or evil man or evil woman. Okay, Um, what do these things say? What do these discourses say? Well, they're ways that people try to explain how things in their world came to be. All right, now the great man, the discourse of the great man says that throughout history, Uh, The greatest changes, the greatest movers and shakers, and the people who made our world the way it is today were due to exceptionally talented men and women. All right, and these men and women are responsible for major breakthroughs, for changing the course of history. Now, in tandem with the discourse of the great man, you get the discourse of the good old days. And we almost all subscribe to this. The discourse of the good old days is pretty obvious. It just says things were better in grandma and grandpa's day. Uh, 
uh, things were better in the good old days, and now that they have they have deteriorated, and we are living in a more fallen state, and things get worse from generation to generation. Now these discourses are so attractive, enticing because they're quite simple, and they seem to be accurate from our individual perspective. All right, it's an easy way to explain why things happen and why you're frustrated with life. Most people are frustrated with their lives. Most people think that the goal of life now is to be happy, and we're not happy. Therefore, things must have been better in some previous day and age. And part of our unhappiness must also derive from the fact that we lack great men and women. And we had great men and women in the old days, and we don't anymore. The history that I teach, the college-level history of East Asia, is the exact opposite of the discourse of the great man and the discourse of the good old days. All right, Individual personalities do not loom large in my lectures, in my lessons. Um, personalities are almost utterly irrelevant. This is one thing that I think um, is different about college-level history. Um, versus history that might be taught in uh, elementary schools, high schools, um, or amateur uh, histories that you might find um, on the bookshelves. Okay, um, At the college level, some, I don't want to sound you know, sort of like an elitist here, but I do think there is an important distinction that needs to be made. Um, we focus more on larger forces that are at work, and individual people are rarely responsible for some major change or the rise of some phenomenon. Oftentimes, the way that we'll approach something is to say, yes, this person was important, but if he never lived or if he was killed as a child or there was an accident that took him out of the running to become the leader that he eventually became, someone else would have taken his place because larger conditions had already created a situation in which this was bound to happen or this was very likely to happen. All right, if Hitler was assassinated by one of his subordinates in 1939, yes, it would have been significant. Yes, there would have been turbulence in the Nazi party. But would the course of history have been entirely different? Probably not. The, the, the criteria, the factors that led to the rise of someone like Hitler were so much larger than one individual person alone. Okay, so we're going to be focusing on larger forces, not individual personalities. We are going to talk a lot about Confucius and Confucian ideas, but I'm not going to be spinning fireside yarns about Confucius and his mother or Confucius's personal life. All right, we're going to be talking about why Confucian ideas took root, what was attractive about them. Not inherently so, not these are attractive ideas because they're self-evidently superior to any other philosophy of the day and age. We're going to say how, we're going to ask the question, how do Confucian ideas manage to conform to the status quo of the day and reinforce the power and balance of society at large? That's the way we're going to address uh, the ancient Chinese philosophers. Now, when I look at history, what I see is the greatest mind hive that has ever existed. 
History to me is just example after example of how really smart people dealt with life. Almost nothing that we could possibly do in our lives is totally without precedent. Yes, the details are different. You know, 2,000 years ago, no one was flying to the moon. All right, yes, the details are very different, but not the basic underlying motivations or actions. Okay? And when you understand the recurrent motivations for why people act the way they act, it helps you get perspective on the stuff that's swirling around you in your daily lives. I wouldn't say that it makes you apathetic or that you stop caring about things, but you do begin to see more and more perspectives on why people do what they do. And for me, history provides all sorts of examples of how people like me have dealt with problems just like the problems that I'm dealing with in my life. And sometimes when I'm studying history, what I often think about is the movie Goodwill Hunting. This is why I talk about history as therapy. There's this moment in Goodwill Hunting towards the end in which Matt Damon's character, a troubled, a troubled youth, a troubled genius youth, um, you know, he can't really come to terms with the difficulties that he's faced in his life and really embrace a new life and go out and embrace his talents and become someone successful and at peace with the world that he lives in. And at one point towards the end, you have the, Robin's William, the Robin Williams character, which is his therapist. And the therapist, Robin Williams, pulls out a file and he says, I saw all the shit that happened to you when you were young. It was pretty awful stuff. And he has that really emotional moment in the movie where he just starts repeating the line over and over again. It's not your fault. All this stuff that happens to you is not your fault. And for me, history is one goodwill hunting moment after another. It's not your fault. It's very cathartic. The goal is not to divest you of all responsibility for what happens in your lives. You still exercise lots of individual agency, but to understand what things are in your control and what things are not in your control <laughs> and what things have already been dealt with and addressed many times throughout history and no one had a better answer for it then either. Uh, for me, that's, that's very satisfying to understand that. It's very satisfying to get some of that perspective and to understand that things weren't better in grandma and grandpa's day. Start learning about history and you'll realize that grandma and grandpa also thought that things were better in their grandma and grandpa's day. And their grandparents also thought that things were better. Heck, you go back. We're going to go back in this podcast. We're going to go back to the earliest records in East Asian history. And we're going to find out that when you get to the first sign of writing, the first stories that are being told, they're already talking about the good old days and the great men who no longer appear in society. And we're already talking about how we're in a fallen state and we need great men. And they only exist in the past. The discourse of the good old days has been around forever. And when you realize that, you start saying, wait a second, maybe things weren't better <laughs> in the good old days. 
And what we also learn in history is a history of discourse. This, to me, is one of the most fascinating things. The history of discourse, basically, is how people justify doing selfish things. Perhaps one of the most important skills in the world. We all have agendas, things that we want to do in our lives. And we can't, at least when we're grown up, when we're kids, we can just say, I want this because I want it. But when you become an adult, you have to be a little more suave about it. You have to be a little more roundabout. You have to say, I'm doing this for selfless motives. Whatever I'm doing in life is for someone else. But I'm not going to tell you that. Not for someone else, sorry. Whatever I'm doing is something that I personally want. It's selfish. may not be a bad selfish, but it's still selfish. It's what you want. But if you present it to the outside world like that, you open yourself up to criticism. You open yourself up to attack as a selfish person. You need to master the discourse of pursuing what you want without revealing your truly selfish motives for why you're doing something. And when you study history, basically for me, one of the most recurrent things that I see in history is example after example of people trying to pursue personal selfish agendas. Again, that's not, I don't want to put a negative gloss on selfish because not all self-pursuit is a qualitatively bad thing. But it's example after example of people pursuing their own agendas, but finding ways to not reveal that this is their own personal agenda. All right, clearly on the political level, you're going to have that. Emperors and kings and politicians. But it also works at the lower levels of, of, of society. You think of relations between men and women. We'll talk about relations between uh, men and women in East Asia. How does a woman pursue what we might classify as her own self-interest? Something that she wants to uh, accomplish it's her agenda. And yet she lives in a world in which women are not allowed to do things on their own behalf. What sort of strategy would a Chinese woman come up with to justify doing something in her own self-interest when women are not allowed to have self-interest? Well, we will talk about this, but a short little preview <laughs> will reveal that she adopts the strategy of doing things in the interest of the men around her. In the, I'm doing this because it's good for my husband. It's good for my in-laws. But the most powerful thing she has is when she has a son. When a Chinese woman gets a son, then for the first time, she has a male person in whose name she can speak, to pursue her own self-interest and yet be free from criticism because it's all for the good of the child. And unlike an adult male or her in-laws, the child is young and relatively unformed. I'm not trying to portray this in a manipulative sense, um, but it is the first time that a Chinese woman has access to a resource, her son, over which she can exercise a relatively large degree of control, autonomous from the men and elders who surround her and are trying to control her body, her labor, her thoughts. And now she finally has a little bit of autonomous space where she can pursue 
her own self-interest and couch it in the language of, this is for the good of your son, your grandson. This is one example of so many times that we're going to see throughout this podcast, a way in which history is giving us an example of the history of discourse, but also just the history of how people deal with difficult situations that constrain their ability to do what they want, and yet they find a way to do it. History is not going to solve your problems. What it does is it grants you perspective and a certain peace of mind that is difficult to get anywhere else. Whatever ails you, put a history of in front of it. Read a few books on the topic, and I guarantee you will feel better about your ailment. You'll understand why things happened, how things came to be. Um, And at least for my money, that's one of the most valuable things that we can get from any area of uh, the humanities and studying the way that people and societies work. Now, you're here because this podcast is region specific. You don't want to hear me blab on about history in general. Okay. Uh, History writ large. You want to understand what does Professor Jacobs have to say about the history of East Asia? And we are absolutely going to get into that. East Asia, of course is really, really relevant to the world that we live in today. All right, It really matters in world affairs, and people who come from East Asia are highly visible outside of East Asia, and they have been throughout the entire 20th century, Okay, especially China and Japan. But as you get closer, you know, further and further into the 20th century, you add Korea in there as well. Uh, all of East Asia plays an outsized role in world affairs. All right, now what sort of topics are we going to cover in this podcast? Well, we're going to begin at the very beginning of the written record, the very definition of history versus prehistory. We're going to begin with the next podcast episode talking about the complexity of people who live in East Asia and the languages they speak and the scripts that they write. Two very distinct things. And there's going to be a lot of things when we talk about East Asian ethnic identity and languages and writing that are probably going to be very surprising because lots of areas in East Asia have been the target of homogenizing and essentializing myths that have a lot of currency, both within East Asia and outside of East Asia. We're going to try to destroy a lot of those myths. We're going to talk about the ancient philosophers, the ancient Chinese philosophers, and why they were just as much PR agents and con men as they were New Age sages. We're going to put them back in their historical context and realize that they were looking for a job. They were trying to get a job in the court of a king, and they knew that they needed to present an ideology that was attractive and useful to that king. Okay, We're going to talk about the rise and fall of various empires over a 3,000-year period, but more importantly, the different kinds of states and empires that existed. It's not just one damn dynasty after another. Yes, there are a lot of dynasties in China, in East Asian history, and it can seem that they're all interchangeable, but they're absolutely not. And we will discuss in detail what distinguishes one dynasty for another and what sort of broad categories of different dynasties that there are. We're going to restore 
the importance of the nomadic peoples of Inner Asia to the history of East Asia as well. Why, when the last uh, emperor of China of the Qing dynasty abdicated in 1912, why was he a Manchu and not Han? Well, that's a very good question. And we're going to find out that pretty much half the time, about 50% of the time, that there was a major empire that covered the East Asian continental landmass, about half the time, he wasn't Han, what we would think of as Han today. He was an inner Asian nomadic or semi-nomadic person, or a descendant of a nomadic or semi-nomadic state. We're going to talk about the creation of the most sophisticated and complex legal system the world had ever seen. We're going to talk about, as I mentioned before, relations between men and women, how men could accumulate as many women as they could afford to maintain, but also the agency of women and when it was possible for a woman to have more than one man. It did happen. <laughs> uh, exceptional circumstances, but it did happen. We're going to talk about the history of the examination system. Very famous. Chinese had the oldest tradition of exams to get into state service anywhere in the world. They beat their second place competitors, the British, by about 800 years. The British don't have a standardized exam to get into bureaucratic service until the 1800s when they take over India and they need to recruit civil servants for the British Raj. Uh, the Chinese have pretty standardized uh, civil service examinations around the time of 1000 AD or so. In a, in a different form, it even predates that. And we'll, again, we want to connect this to the concerns of our lives, the myths and stereotypes of our lives, and we're going to try and show that the current stereotype, at least in many Western countries, the current stereotype of the Asian math whiz, science whiz, this sort of nonsense, uh, is total nonsense. And that for thousands of years, pretty much all educated Asian elites were history and philosophy whizzes. <laughs> it's only very, very recently in history. We're talking 20th century, sometimes the second half of the 20th century, uh, that you start to see science and math topics take over the curriculum. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. It's because that's the era in which you have countries like China and Japan trying to catch up with the Western countries. Engineering, development is in very high demand. And so the traditional uh, uh, route to elite status in education, in philosophy, in history, the ability to write poetry begins to fall out of favor. We'll talk about the maritime expeditions of the Ming Dynasty eunuch Zheng He and whether he really did <clears throat> discover America and ignite the Italian Renaissance, as one of our esteemed mainstream historians uh, has been putting forth to much profit over the past well, 15, 20 years already. Um, we're going we're gonna to find out just what these expeditions were all about. Spoiler alert, Zheng He did not discover America or ignite the Italian Renaissance. Um, we're going to talk when we get into the modern era. We're going to cover 3,000 years of history in this podcast. We have about 60, 65 episodes outlined. We're going to talk about why China and Japan diverged in their response to the Western threat. One of the most important questions 
of modern Asian history is what happened between China and Japan. China for 2,000, 3,000 years is the center of East Asia, around which everything else revolves. Japan was looked down upon with scorn, oftentimes, by the Chinese. And yet all of a sudden in the late uh, 19th century, Japan surges ahead and China falls behind. One of the most important questions. And we're going to spend some time on understanding that as well. Then, of course, we have the rise of the Japanese Empire. And it's shocking interpretation of who the Japanese were. You're in for a surprise if you think that the Japanese race is one of the most homogenous races that goes back to the mists of time and antiquity. We're going to learn how our idea of who the Japanese are as this pure, undiluted, homogenous race that goes way back in time, that is a myth created about 60 years ago. The power of myths and the hold that they have over the, our, our, our minds is truly stunning. During the Japanese Empire, the Japanese put forth the mainstream view that the Japanese were a mongrel race, and they took pride in calling it a mongrel race. The complete opposite of the myth that would be created after the war ended in 1945. They said the Japanese are descended from all the peoples of East Asia, everywhere, not just East Asia, South Asia, North Asia, East Asia, Central Asia. Our, our, our ancestors came from all these areas, and that's what makes us strong. Total 180 from what's going to happen after 1945. We're going to talk about World War II, the 15-year war, as it's often known in East Asia, between China and Japan. The 1911 revolution in China, the rise and fall of Chiang Kai-shek, and why he didn't have a chance, and his precocious rise to power in the 1920s was ultimately what did him in. The history of Tibetan relations with China, Japan's wartime atrocities, the American wartime atrocities, why the the United States dropping of the atomic bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki was just as much a war crime as anything that the Japanese did in China. But no one's ever going to be held accountable because the victors in war are not held accountable for anything. Taiwan. The fate of Taiwan. We haven't even gotten to the communist era yet in China after 1949. The Great Leap Forward. The Cultural Revolution. This is going to be fun. Now, the last thing I'm going to end on before we actually get into the real podcast in which we talk about the meat and potatoes of East Asian history. Um, we need to explain the title of this podcast. Huaxia. H-U-A-X-I-A, that's modern-day pinyin, uh, a transcription system using Roman letters that was created in China in 1955. Okay, pronounced huaxia. The X is like, kind of like a between an S and an S-H sound. Uh, if you only take one thing away from this episode, it's that huaxia is the most important term that you can understand if you need to understand the history of East Asia. Okay, Huaxia was the chief and primary term of a civilized identity by the literate peoples of the East Asian heartland on the continent for 2,500 years. Okay, it was not a racial term, it was a cultural term. For 2,500 years, if you were literate, if you thought, if you lived in a city, 
then you referred to yourself primarily your first identity was as a member of the Huaxia cultural community. Okay, you didn't refer to yourself primarily as someone who was Chinese. All right, and I want you to replace China as much as you can with Huaxia. All right, if this doesn't make a whole lot of sense now, it will begin to make sense as we get into future episodes. Okay, uh, China is a term, as we'll see, that will mislead you. It will take you down many alleys of misinformation that will make it more difficult to understand all the twists and turns of East Asian history. But we're not just going to focus on Huaxia. We're going to be talking about beyond Huaxia, which is the full title of this podcast. What is beyond Huaxia? Well, beyond Huaxia is all the people who contributed to what became Huaxia culture. Huaxia is not equivalent to the term China or Chinese. Inter-Asian nomads interacted with the Huaxia cultural sphere. Sometimes they took over it and changed it and did not just assimilate into it, but they changed the whole conception of what it meant to be Huaxia. Okay? Now, in layman's terms, Yes, this is basically before we get to about 1800 or so. This is largely a history of what we will think of as China. Okay, but I'm going to do my best to disabuse you of that term over the next 60 episodes or so. And hope that you will try to replace Huaxia, uh, re replace China with Huaxia. Okay, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in the next, uh, in, in the next episode when we introduce East Asia, the major concepts, uh, which I have referred to in the next title as China before China. And we'll stop here for today. I'm Justin Jacobs, and I hope that you will join me for the next episode of Beyond Huaxia.